Hey everybody, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. It's May 19th, 2017. Welcome to episode 100 of the Recording Lounge Podcast. Um, It's been a long time coming to get here to episode 100. I'm really, really appreciative of all the people who have, you know, started from day one of the podcast and have been listening for, you know, how long has it been? Eight years now, I guess, eight or nine years. And, uh, you know, it's crazy. I never really thought the podcast would go this long, but here we are. And I don't have any plans of stopping the podcast. Um, but, uh, episode 100 is, is a pretty big milestone for me. And it's kind of a funny story. You know, I, I've been super busy around the studio. If you saw my Facebook post, you know, I've finished up five or six albums in the last couple months. And, if you've been doing this for a while, then you know, or even if you haven't, you you know the feeling of finishing an album or a, when you're about to finish an album. It's a really sort of like cathartic thing. You're like so close and you're on the final mixes and everyone's checking and everyone's like, oh, is it good? It's good. And then finally it finishes and you just feel this weight off your shoulders and you're like, oh man, it's done. We're happy with it. The client's happy with it, you know, and now they can get it out to the world. Well, that's happened to me about five or six times in the last couple months. So it's been a lot of work. I've put in a lot of hours, but I finally have some downtime to make a podcast and special surprise to you is that this is a two-part episode because there was so much information in this podcast, I had to split it up into two episodes. So episode 100 and 101 are all about studio maintenance. And we're going to talk about what that means very, very in-depth here in just a minute. But uh, I just wanted to take a few minutes to say thanks to all the podcast listeners out there, all the fans I have of this show, um, all the people who have liked and subscribed on my YouTube channel. That stuff is really helpful. All the people who have given me five-star reviews on the iTunes, on, on iTunes reviews for the podcast, that's really helpful and keeps my rankings high and looks just looks good. Um, I really appreciate all the support I've had over the years, especially people emailing me and asking questions. Anyone who has purchased my book, um, I mean, all of those people have been very instrumental in helping me do this podcast. Um, I also really, really appreciate the people who have supported me on Patreon and PayPal. Um, those types of donations and pledges really help me keep this podcast afloat. I mean, just a dollar per episode of a pledge it might not seem like much. You know, I know that, you know, you can go buy a cup of coffee for four bucks at Starbucks or whatever, but, you know, just a dollar per episode for me or a couple dollars per episode is really helpful because if I get, you know, 20 people to do that or a hundred people to do that, um, you know, this podcast can, uh, can keep going without sort of going into the red. Um, you know, this podcast is free for you, but it's not free for me. It takes a lot of time and it takes money to do this podcast. I've got to pay for hosting and storage from all the episodes and my bandwidth, you know, the, the more episodes episodes we have and the more listeners that we get, the that gets more and more expensive because of the bandwidth and the amount of people downloading these episodes. Um, you know, and of course, like I said, the, the time it takes to do this, you know, is uh, I have to essentially schedule studio time for myself uh, to do this and I can't, I can't do anything else while doing it. Um, so those pledges on Patreon and PayPal are super, super helpful. If you're interested in doing that, you can go to recordingloungepodcast.com and click support RL and it will take uh, Take you to links to either of those. If you're outside of the United States, it might be cheaper for you to do a recurring PayPal donation. Um, that's what I've heard, uh, but either one is up to you. 
Uh, I also wanted to just take a minute to uh, say thanks to any new listeners that we have uh, to this podcast. I know that some people haven't been with us since the beginning, and and I'm getting new listeners all the time. And so if you're here listening, I just want to say thanks. I appreciate your time uh, to listen to my ramblings about audio and sound. Um, One other cool story is that I was recently, for the first time, interviewed on another podcast. Um, I've done some interviews for some blogs and some, you know, articles and things like that, but I haven't ever been interviewed as a guest on another podcast. So I was interviewed for the audioskills.com podcast and super, super nice people over there. And it was really neat for me to be sort of on the other side of that interview process where someone is asking me questions and I'm giving my thoughts and opinions on things like, you know, what advice do I have for people that are just starting out and, you know, just various recording questions and things like that. So anyway, uh, go check out that episode when it releases. It's probably coming out in a couple weeks. I believe it'll, it'll be a two-part episode. Um, so I think it'll, it'll be at 11 and 12 on the Audio Skills Podcast, but I'm not positive about that. I will send out an email uh, reminder for anyone who's subscribed to the mailing list uh, when that episode releases. So also, I just wanted to say, if you want to sign up for the mailing list, I promise you it is no spam, and I'm not one of those places that will email you every day with useless information that you don't want to read, that you will just swipe on your phone and delete my email. Okay, I only send out emails when there is something of note. You know, if there's a new episode, if there's a new YouTube video, uh, if there's a new blog post, if, you know, something like this audio skills podcast uh, thing drops, anything like that. I only send out emails when it's pertinent. So let's get on with today's episode. Now, what is studio maintenance and what am I talking about here? Well, this episode came from a couple of different sources. First, I've gotten questions, tons of questions over the years, over the last nine years or eight years of doing this podcast, where people will ask me little tiny tidbits about studio maintenance, like, um, you know, how can I make my gear, you know, or orient my gear in my room for the lowest noise floor? And how do you run cables between rooms? And how do you get guitar signals between rooms? And um, what about keeping, you know, beer and water and coffee around the studio? Do you do that? Is that a good idea? What about, you know, Wi-Fi in the studio? Like all kinds of random little questions that I've gotten over the years. And last year I had a podcast listener email me and ask me to do a show on studio maintenance. And, you know, they gave me some ideas and I thought, you know, I've gotten so many little questions about that. I'm just going to do a huge two-part episode about that topic and talk about everything from like gear stuff to aesthetic stuff to, you know, building stuff like run, uh, like running a physical building and managing a building or a studio. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about taxes. We're going to talk about I mean, tons of stuff. Okay. So, uh, without further ado, let's get started. This is part one of Studio Maintenance 
You're listening to Daylight in a Dark Room by the band Cavern Company. Now, you guys might remember Cavern Company from a little while back when we did Let's Mix and Master a Song, and we mixed their song uh, Dancing in the Dark. Now, I uh, got a lot of great reviews from this, and the band has gone through some changes. They've changed out their singer, but they all have the same members. They've sort of changed their style a little bit, and I got to say, I really love their music. Uh, this is one of the albums that was finished in the last couple months, and I love this album. I, I think the guys are great. They really push themselves to write great songs for this record. It releases very soon. It was recorded and mixed here, so go check that out. So the first section of this podcast is all about gear stuff. Now, what do I mean by gear stuff? Well, there's so many little questions I've gotten over the years about things like cabling and patch bays and monitor controllers and things like that, that, uh, you know, these aren't necessarily in any particular order, but I thought these were some of the big bullet points that I wanted to share about, uh, about the way that I run my studio and ways that I think you can improve the workflow in your studio. So the first one is cables and cable management. So a lot of people ask me how I run my cables, how I store my cables, you know, how I've got everything routed. And so I'll paint a picture for you. Um, most of my cables uh, that I, I have hanging on the wall, and that's a really efficient way to hang cables because they don't get tangled up. And what I use essentially is coat hangers. And you can get coat hangers that have two or three, uh, you know, hooks, and you can hang one or two cables per hook. And they look nice. You know, they you you can hang quite a few cables. Now, other people have just made things. That's totally doable. You know, with a couple of pieces of wood, you can make, you know, a big, uh, you know, s s column, like a two by four, essentially, and then put posts on it and hang cables on there. That's also really, really useful. Um, but keeping cables up on the wall makes them easily accessible and out of the way, and they don't get all bundled up in a, in a trunk or in a basket or box or something. Um, so the way that I run my cables in my studio um, is I have one large custom-built snake that goes into my live room. And uh, that is fed through the wall through a PVC pipe. Now, that PVC pipe is insulated all the way around. So it, it's sealed and insulated uh, with rubber and that sort of uh, spray foam stuff that expands. So it's sort of like floating in that in between those two walls uh, and decoupled from those walls. And all the cabling runs through that PVC pipe which is also sort of capped off at the end. I can't really describe it in words, but uh, it's got sort of a bit of a seal on the end of it. So, you know, you're trying to deal with as, as little sound leakage between the two rooms as possible. Uh, and it works really well. Uh, all of those channels are hardwired to mic preamps. I decided not to go to a patch bay and then from the patch bay to the preamps just because it's an extra step, it's extra cabling, you know, and I save a good 10 or 15 feet of cabling by doing that, by just going hardwired into preamps. And so my snake channels, 1 through 18, are exactly my preamps, 1 through 18. And I've actually got a separate snake that has a couple extra preamps on it. But um, so one through 18 go directly to preamps one through 18. So in my rack in order, I've got the API 3124. That's one, two, three, four. Okay. And then I've got a, an A design Pacifica. That's five, six. So it's in order in the rack that it is on the snake. So it's, it's not hard to remember for me. So it makes things really easy. I just pick what preamp I'm going to use and I plug the source directly into that. And it's going 
hardwired right into the preamp. Um, so that works really well for me. Now, all of those preamps then come to a patch bay. I've got the patch bay set up in a half normaled configuration. And what that essentially means is, and I'm going to, I'm planning on doing a YouTube video about patch bays because they're very often misunderstood. But um, essentially what that means is by default, it will pass through onto my interface unless I break the connection with a cable on the front. So on the back, it comes in from the preamps and then goes to my interface on the back. Um, so the little jumper, you know, short cables there. But then uh, if I break the connection on the front with a patch cable, then it will allow me to send that uh, to a compressor or an EQ or something like that. I'm going to talk about patch base here in a second. But anyway, um, so that's kind of my basic cabling. And and then I go, to, obviously, to outboard gear, and it comes back to the patch bay uh, and all that stuff. So one other word I would like to say is if you don't know how to make your own cables, learn, okay? It's not that hard, okay? You really don't need that much skill to use a soldering iron to make guitar cables and mic cables. Basically, every cable, including the snake um, that is here in the studio, I have made myself or have, have made with friends or have paid a friend to make it for me just because of time and I didn't want to mess with it. Um, so uh, it's so much cheaper to do. And all of the cabling here is Mogami cabling because I think it sounds the best. Uh, it's really reliable. I've, I don't think I've ever had a Mogami cable break uh, or be, you know, short out or anything like that. So I really, really like that. And, and, and making cables is, is a, just a super simple and valuable skill. Uh, you can buy all the parts at Redco, which is where I got the parts for all my stuff, redco.com. That's R-E-D-C-O. I think, think that's the website, redco.com. Um, and, you know, it's it's so much cheaper than buying, like a Mogami cable that you can buy at Guitar Center might be like $80 for a 20-foot cable, and you can make it yourself for like 20 okay? And you might not be like, okay, yeah, that's cool, but over the years of having more and more cables and needing more and more cabling, this becomes really, really expensive when it comes to cables. So, for example, if I wanted to buy a snake that, uh, the, like the same snake that was made from my live room into my control room, into my preamps, I mean, that, that would probably be like $1,000 or something like that. Um, but if I were to build it myself, which we did, it was like 300 I mean, it, it saved a ton of money to build it myself. And yes, it takes time. Yes, it takes some skill. And yes, it takes some materials that you have to have, you know, wire cutters, wire strippers, soldering, a good soldering iron. You got to have solder. You got to have heat shrink. You got to have, I mean, you got to have some stuff, but really it's not that much. Uh, one more thing I'd like to mention is, and we're going to talk about headphones here in a minute, but I've got a separate snake that goes into the room for my headphones. So all those are coming out of power amps uh, through the snake into the live room for a headphone snake. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but that's another part of my cabling. Um, so the next thing I want to kind of talk about with this is the patch bay. We briefly touched on it here just a minute ago. All my cables from the preamps come through snakes into the patch bay. And I essentially have three patch bays, and I'll sort of detail what each one does. So the first patch bay that I have is for all of my preamp outputs. So this allows me to route uh, the signal from my preamps into other things, whether it's a compressor or an EQ or whatever. So that's sort of my main patch bay. That's, you know, the one that gets used the most. But then I have a separate patch bay that has all of my outboard gear on it. So my compressors, my EQs, uh, you know, 
all that stuff is on its own patch base. So if I want to go from, say, an API preamp into a tube tech compressor, I run a patch cable from the output of my API to the input of my tube tech, and then another cable from the output of my tube tech to the input of my interface, which is in line with my preamp channel. Uh, and again, I'm going to try to do a YouTube video here pretty soon about patch bays because they're very confusing sometimes. And then I've got a third patch bay that is for outputs from my interface. So this handles all of my outputs. I can route them to various things. I can record the output of a headphone mix if I need to. Um, I can make a separate mix and send it to its own output. Um, I can very quickly adjust things and, you know, reroute my outputs as needed. That patch bay doesn't get used a ton, but when I need it, it's, it's just the simplest way to go. So that's kind of my patch bay setup. It's very simple. I also have another little patch bay uh, device that allows me to split signals and sum signals, um, which is really useful for doing like parallel stuff and for just summing like two mics on a guitar cabinet down to one channel. Um, that can be really helpful as well. So uh, that's my basic patch bay setup. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about is my monitoring setup and how I control my monitors. All of my outputs from my DAW go into, uh, well, not all of them, but my main stereo outputs go into my monitor controller, which is a dangerous monitor ST. Now, I love this monitor controller, and I've been using it for five or six years, something like that. And I just think it's fantastic. Um, it just does the job so well. It, it sounds great. Well, it doesn't really sound like anything. That's the whole point. Uh, it's got a headphone output. I mean, it's got all kinds of great stuff. Um, it's got an aux input, which I use for plugging in people's iPods and iPhones and stuff. It's just, it does everything that I need. So, and it's a stepped volume control. So from this unit, it goes to my barefoot Micromain 27s, which are my pride and joy and my lovely mains. And then on uh, my alt speaker selection, my alt one goes to my set of NS10s and alt two goes to a little set of like uh, cube monitors that I built that are essentially just, um, you know, a stereo pair of single driver reference speakers and they're kind of mid-rangey and they're kind of like an oratone, but a little different. Um, and that's basically it. And then I've got my aux input, which I can hook up to an iPod, and I've got my alternate, my alternate input, which is uh, essentially my my second mix bus. I have sort of a back bus on my uh, on my mixer channel in, in Nuendo that has a, essentially a separate mix um, that I can monitor if need be as well. Um, so, and that, that's a little complicated, but it doesn't get used a lot. It's not really that important. Um, but the dangerous allows me to, you know, change, uh, the mix to mono. It allows me to mute one side or solo one side. Um, it, it has a dim control. It's got a talkback control that isn't that great. That's the one downside about it. For whatever reason, the talkback on the dangerous is pretty mediocre. Um, and I think it's better suited for when the dangerous is actually, uh, right in front of you, which in my studio it is not. It would probably work better if it was, you know, but um, it's not. It's over to my left. But anyway, it's just a great device, and I highly recommend having a monitor controller. It will just make your life a lot easier, and there are so many out there, um, but I can't recommend the Dangerous Monitor ST enough. I mean, it's just awesome. Okay, so we mentioned headphones just a minute ago. I wanted to talk briefly about my headphone setup. 
this is something that a lot of people ask me about, how I run my headphones and why I do them, do, do them this way. So essentially what I do is I have four mixes available to me. Mix A, mix B, mix C, mix D. All these mixes I can make through my interface control panel uh, from foldback from live tracking. So I have four mixes available to me. I wish I had more, but that's all I can, that's really all I can do at this time. Well, in certain situations, I can have five or six mixes available, but I won't go into that. For the most part, I have four mixes. And uh, the way that I do this is that each stereo output of my interface, which is going to be outputs 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and 12, uh, go out to Crown D75 power amps. Now, the special thing about these power amps is that you can run them at sort of a hot level, like you're driving a pair of speakers, but they have a headphone output on the front that is padded down. Uh, now, it's not padded down a ton, but it's padded down quite a bit. So um, what I do is I run a snake from those headphone outputs, which is just a TRS cable. Uh, that goes to a sort of a, a, uh, a simple little six-channel snake that goes out to my... Like I said, I, I have the ability to run two more mixes, but it, it's kind of a complex thing. But those go to uh, a snake that goes into my live room that has six channels. Now, on that snake, uh, the outputs are XLR male. So I plug in uh, an XLR female side into those headphone outputs. Um, if you're not familiar, if you're new at this, um, you know, TRS is essentially a balanced connection. TS is like a guitar cable tip sleeve, um, and TRS is tip ring sleeve. So that is a balanced signal, but can also be used as a stereo signal. Um, it is essentially, it becomes a stereo unbalanced signal, but still that's what we use headphones with. So it's not a big deal. Now that comes out of my headphone amps through the snake into the other room. And comes out an XLR male plug, which I plug in an XLR female side to. And I do that because I use these little headphone boxes called the Furman HR2, I think is what they're called. And they're essentially just a little volume control. And they take an XLR input. And that's why I have XL, XLR ends on the opposite side. And I really like that because I can just use a mic cable. So I go from the snake into these Furman boxes. These Furman boxes can also be daisy chained with each other so they can share the same mix. Um, so I can run infinite number of these boxes essentially uh, by running an XLR cable also out of the Furman box into another Furman box. And all those boxes do are give a level control. Okay. There's no like, you know, bass, drums, vocals, like they can't control individual things. It's just a, essentially a volume control for their headphones. Now, in some time, sometimes I do wish I had the ability to, uh, you know, let people control their own mix, but I often find that, you know, people don't always know what they need anyway. <laughs> that might sound a little mean, but, um, what I usually try to do is make their mix and then go listen to everybody's headphone mix individually. It only takes a couple minutes and just make sure that they're getting what they need. So the one thing I will also mention about the Furman boxes is that, Inside of the Furman boxes, um, they are padded down because they're meant to accept the signal from a power amp. 
Um, now the crowns aren't like tons of power, but I mean, they're 75 Watts. I mean, they're, they have quite a bit of power. Um, and because I'm running through the padded input from the front of those boxes, cause I don't want to send a crazy hot signal through that snake or your, your chances of getting bleed are, are like, this is kind of a weird topic, but you want to send a strong signal through a snake, but you don't want to send it so hot that it could actually bleed into other things. Um, and you also don't want to overload those cables. Like you really should be using like thick gauge speaker cable when running from the output of a power amp, but I'm not running from the output of the power amp. I'm running from the headphone output. So I'm going through a, you know, a simple, a snake, which is not heavy gauge wire, Okay, so anyway, I'm coming from the output of that, and I essentially opened up the Furman boxes, and I clipped out the resistors that are in there. The resistors are making a pad in those headphone boxes, and that's what you need if you are running from the output of a headphone amp, but I'm running from the headphone output of a power amp. Um, so... Anyway, you, you might have to experiment with that, but essentially I modified the boxes. I just clipped out the resistors and put a wire there instead um, because those are acting as a pad, okay? And that, I mean, that's really common. You can pad things down with the resistor. I mean, that's how like on a guitar amp, the low input and the high input, that's all that is, is a resistor that, that pads down the signal. Um, so I clipped out the resistors, and so all of my Furman boxes now um, are much uh, are working much better with the levels from the headphone output on my power amps. So um, that my headphones of choice for most people uh, lately have been the Telefunken isolation headphones. So these were made in partnership with Extreme Isolation, the company, and Telefunken. And they're essentially like a hot rotted version of the extreme isolation headphones. And I'm, I'm using them right now. And I love these headphones. They sound good. They isolate really well. They look great. They feel great on the ears. They're not tiring. And my clients like them. Uh, for the first time, I, ha I have had clients say like, I love these headphones. So that's a really big plus for me. So, uh, we've already talked about quite a bit of stuff. So I'm going to just review basically, uh, sort of big bullet points here. So... All of my cabling um, from for from microphones comes through a snake direct to the preamps. The preamps go to a patch bay, so I can then route those to various things. Um, I have three patch bays. I have one for the pre's, I have one for the outboard gear, and I have one for the outputs of my interface. That allows me to route things how I need. Those uh, the main outputs of my interface go into my monitor ST, which controls my monitors. And then my uh, other outputs on my on my um, interface go to my headphone amps, my Crown D75s. I run through the padded front input, which is just a single TRS cable headphone output on the front. I also will say I run those pretty hot, about three quarters of the way up, because um, they then go into a snake through a TRS cable that goes through the wall to my live room and comes out to an XLR box with six channels. Um, those then plug into my Furman boxes, which I have modified. I've clipped out the resistors in there, which are acting as a pad. Um, that allows them to, to control their overall headphone volume. Their headphones plug directly into the Furman boxes, which I mount uh, either on the wall or uh, on a music stand, or they can also, they have like these little adapter, you can like uh, tighten it onto a mic stand, like a little clip, um, and they can plug their headphones directly into that and control their headphone volume. 
Uh, so that's sort of the overview of what's going on here. It works really well for me. Uh, like I said, sometimes I do wish I had a system where they could control their own levels, but uh, for the most part, I I have no problem controlling their headphone mix from in here. Uh, it, it works just fine for me. So that's an overview of my cabling and uh, headphone situation. The next thing I'd like to talk about briefly is organizing your cables and orienting your cabling uh, for the lowest noise. Now, obviously, the first step is getting good quality cables. Like if you've got good quality cables with good shielding, your chances for noise are much lower. And balanced cables can run very long distances without signal loss. At least good balanced cables can. Um, as guitar players, you know, we know that running long guitar cables and instrument cables is not a good idea. We want to try to keep instrument cables and unbalanced cables short. Um, they are much more prone to noise than balanced cables. But what I'm mostly talking about here is orienting your cabling to get the highest uh, possible signal-to-noise ratio. So a couple years back, I noticed that my noise floor, just like sitting there, just like the gear on but nothing running to it, seemed a little bit higher uh, than what I expected. And I mean, it was still really low in terms of like, you know, like the grand scheme of things, I think it was like negative 85 or negative 90 or something, which is still really low. I mean, obviously like now interfaces are, they go down to like negative 120, but I was like, man, that seems a little high, right? Like, because I know that modern interfaces are like negative 105 and negative 110, negative 120 dB uh, where the noise is. And I was like, okay, I know that's just the interface and I've got gear plugged into it, but what are ways that I can reduce that? Well, I noticed that I had a lot of um, just sort of sloppy cabling when it came to running power lines and audio lines. And in general, you should try to keep these things as separated as possible. So I'll give you some tips. The first thing is most gear, when you're looking at the back of the gear, most gear has the power, the IEC jack on the left side. And that is so you can run your IEC cables all on the left of the rack. And you can run your audio cables a little bit more on the right side of the rack. You can keep those things separated. Okay. So that's what I do. I cable tie and run, you know, as, as clean lines as I can on the left side of my rack up to uh, my Furmans, which I have up on the top of every rack. I have a Furman power conditioner at the top of every single rack. So those run along the left side and run up to the Furmans. My audio lines come down and go on the right side. So the, they, they stay away from each other quite a bit. Um, and my audio lines come down and run sort of, I try to run them a little bit more on the right side. And most gear tends to do that anyway, you know, the audio is on the right side of the piece of gear and the, and the power's on the left side. But anyway, so all those run through the snakes and those snakes all go to back through, uh, you know, back by the wall and over to my uh, patch base. Now, my power situation is as follows. As far away from the other pieces of gear as I can, which is right here to my left in the leg of my desk is my primary power conditioner, which is a Furman, let's see here, a P2400 is what this is. And this is a real deal big boy power conditioner. Like a lot of the power conditioners that you see um, from Furman, like just the 1U things, 
they're really just a power strip, not so much a power conditioner. Um, and, and they don't have a big transformer in there to help regulate voltage. They don't have all the protections that these types of things have. So this is not a cheap thing. I mean, I think it's two or $3,000. Um, and I mean, they probably have new models since I bought this, but this runs straight into my wall. Okay, and it goes out from the back of my desk and goes to the right and runs into a single outlet on the wall. No audio lines really cross this thing. Okay, um, I, I think maybe one set of audio lines does. Now, if you're going to cross audio lines and power lines, try to do it at a, at a 90 degree angle. So like an X, right? Um, so there's as little contact between these two things as possible. If you run them in parallel, where like the power lines are just laying right next to the audio lines, the chance for noise is much higher. So try to run these things, uh, you know, cross them perpendicular to each other. Um, so everything in this entire room is plugged into this unit. Okay, so how it works is what's essentially called star grounding, where this unit plugs into the wall, and then all of my other firmans plug into this firman. Okay, so this thing runs to the firman that is at the top of my desk here and the top of my desk on the right, and it plugs into my battery backup, which goes to my computer. Okay, uh, just as a safety measure. And then it goes across to the right of me, which is all of my outboard gear and power amps and all that stuff. So all of my audio gear is over to one side and the Furman is about as far away from everything else as you can get it. And it's plugged in straight into the wall. So you might be asking, like, all of your gear is on one outlet? Yes, and it should be. And in most cases, that shouldn't be a problem for you. Um because, I mean, audio gear really doesn't take that much power. Like, with every piece of gear I have on, which is a lot of gear, okay? I've got, you know, 20-something preamps. I've got, I mean, tons of compressors and EQs. And I've got my computer and my interface and my monitors. And I've got power amps. And I've got, you know, all kinds of stuff. With all of that stuff on and working for a live band, I might be using 9 amps, okay? And most home, like residential outlets can handle 15 amps, easy. Uh, commercial outlets and, and commercial setups can generally do 20 amps. Um, but most regular outlets will, you know, and breakers will handle 15 amps before they trip. Um, so I've never had, a, you know, I've never had this go. And I do this, you know, a lot, okay? And I've had live bands in here and I've had people with camera crews and people charging their cell phones and all this stuff. Um, and, and it doesn't ever trip, okay? Um, audio gear really doesn't take that much power. Um, probably what takes the most power is like my computer. Uh, I mean, it takes a ton of power. But anyway, all this stuff plugs. So the Furman plugs into the wall. All the other firmans plug into this firman, and then all the gear plugs into those firmans, okay? So uh, hopefully that makes sense. And when I rearranged my gear to be in this uh, fashion, in this arrangement, my noise floor dropped by 12 dB, okay? 12 dB, that's significant, okay? Um, that's like essentially a quarter of the loudness. Okay. So if minus six dB is essentially half loudness, that's sort of just a rule of audio. Um, then minus 12 dB is quarter loudness. Okay. So it was significant how much noise was reduced from doing that. 
Uh, so the general rule is try to keep audio lines and power lines away from each other. And if you have to cross them, try to cross them at a perpendicular, you know, 90 degree angle uh, or an X, right, where they have as minimal contact with each other as possible. And you can run your entire control room off of one outlet, provided that you have a good voltage regulating power conditioner, not just your regular like power strip, but a good voltage regulator. Okay. You want to make sure that all of your gear is not only using the same ground to avoid noise issues, but that it's all being regulated in voltage because you, if you have, you know, high voltage in your area, um, you know, some, some residential areas are pushing like 130 volts. Now I'm talking about here in the U S I know over in Europe, it's different, but, uh, here in the U S our 120 volt standard is, you know, what's supposed to come from the wall, but some places have 125, 128. Uh, I mean, that's really high. And so you can, I mean, you can damage your gear that way. And similarly, you can damage gear if it's underpowered, if it's, you know, 117, 116 volts. So these things help to regulate the voltage and put out a steady 120 volts to all of your gear. And that just works. Okay. That just works really well. And they also have protection built in for noise and for overages and for, you know, emergency shutoffs. If, if things are struck by lightning or things like that. Um, anyway, uh, one quick word about that too. So I'm here in Oklahoma, right? Tornado alley. Like we just had tornado warnings last night. Okay. I, it's dark and cloudy out there today. Um, around April and May, it can be, you know, serious, serious weather here. Uh, it's beautiful like 90% of the time, but you know, our tornado season is really, really heavy storms and, um, and they can be scary. So one word of caution I would like to say is if there's bad weather in your area, there's thunderstorms, lightning, things like that. I just unplug your gear from the wall. Okay. It's the safest way, especially unplug your computer from the wall. The way that I do this is because everything is routed to the Furman. I essentially turn off all my gear, turn off my computer. And all I have to do is unplug the Furman from the wall, one cable, and that unplugs everything. Okay. So now nothing is plugged into the wall. So if there is a lightning strike or if there's any sort of thing like that, there's no way it's even getting to any of my gear in any way. Um, you know, it's not, I don't even have to deal with it. I've got too much uh, valuable gear to even worry about that. So if the weather starts to get really bad and I mean, if it's raining, I don't do that. But if, I mean, if we have like, you know, warnings from the weather service and stuff like that, I mean, or lightning, anything like that, um, you know, it can seriously damage gear because yes, even though this gear does say it has like overage protection and stuff like that, like a lightning strike in just the right or wrong way, um, can, I mean, come on, it's voltage higher than is measurable. So we don't really know what's exactly going to happen. Okay. So I don't take the risk. I just unplug stuff from the wall. And because of the way I've got it routed, it's very simple. Turn off the gear, unplug one cable and I'm done. I feel good. I feel safe. So, uh, let's talk briefly about managing the power between rooms. Okay. So, um, what I decided to do is put my live room, uh, my amp wall on its own circuit. Now that can create some grounding problems. Why? Because to have no noise or to have no ground, you know, ground loop problems, everything needs to be running to the same ground. Okay. So 
when I have this outlet for all of my audio gear and I have those outlets, uh, which are all in one circuit for my guitar amps, uh, I did that mostly because guitar amps take a lot of voltage and, you know, and they, they take a lot of power and I didn't want to run everything off of one outlet. Um, you know, so that is on its own circuit. But they, while this studio is star grounded, they don't always, you know, it's not always noise free performance. And part of that is just the way that things are running. Okay. So when I run a guitar line from my guitar in here, uh, in, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute into the live room, it's essentially grounding at the guitar amp. Okay. And so I've got gear grounded in here and then I've got gear grounded at the guitar amp. And so that's two separate paths to ground. So that will sometimes create um, noise. And we're going to talk about how to manage that here in just a little bit. But that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, you got to be careful about that stuff. So the next topic I wanted to talk about briefly is just organization in general. Um, we know we talked a little bit about cable organization, but I just wanted to say a quick word that, you know, don't delay organizing your stuff. Okay. Organizing like anything from microphones and, you know, uh, guitar picks and slides and capos and, you know, having a place for AC adapters and for pedals, like don't just have stuff messy in your studio. Okay. Know where everything is in your studio, organize it in a way that's efficient, that's easy to know, you know, where stuff is. I mean, if you ask me, you know, where is blah, blah, blah in your studio? I can tell you off the top of my head. I know it. I know where everything is in this building. Um, and so that's really efficient for me and it helps me to find stuff quickly. Um, you know, have a place where you put your headphones, have a place where you put your cabling, have a place where you put your pop filters, have a place where you put your pedals and where you put your guitar capos and stuff like that. Um, it's just really important. Make sure you make use of good shelving, um, stuff that's stable and secure, uh, where you can put pedals or microphones or whatever you need for that. Uh, make use of vertical space is another tip I have. You know, don't hang stuff on the walls. You know, it, it's a great way to save space on the floor. Hang cables on the walls, put guitars on the walls, you know, with guitar wall hangers. That's a really efficient way to save space. Um, you know, it, the walls are not just for acoustic treatment. I mean, you can put gear, you know, and I mean, I've seen that like rack here, but you know, you can put cables and stuff like that and headphones up on the wall and save a lot of space and, and avoid having to use like a big basket or something full of cables, which is just, you know, bound to get tangled. Um, and you can build this stuff yourself. Like you can build shelves for very affordably. If you're good with a saw and a nail gun and a hammer and a screwdriver, you can build this stuff really easily. Like for example, you can build your own racks for rack gear. Literally all you need are a couple pieces of wood, generally like three quarter inch plywood. And all you have to do is find the right height. So you buy your rack rails. If you want 14U rack rails or 10U or 2U, you can buy that stuff online on eBay or on, I mean, I'm pretty sure you can buy it on like Musician's Friend Sweetwater. Just buy the rack rails. Um, and then the width is essentially like 19 and an eighth or 19 and three sixteenths 
uh, of an inch uh, width because rack units are 19 inches wide, uh, give or take a little bit. And you need just a little extra space to make sure that it's not going to be too tight. Um, some people will do 19 and a quarter. I usually like to do about 19 and three sixteenths inches. So again, that's, you know, in us, you know, imperial, but, uh, you know, you can do that just enough space in between those racks. You mount the rack rails and there you go. I mean, for under a hundred bucks, you can get like a huge rack full of gear rather than spending all this money on like, you know, pre-made stuff. That's not even as strong as doing it with three quarter inch plywood. Um, I have made all of the racks in my studio. If you go to um, my website, theclosetstudios.com, and you see that main picture, not only did I make my desk, but I also made the triple rack bay on my right. You know, I made this rack bay over here for like $180. And this these dimensions I got from a, you know, fancy studio piece of furniture on Vintage King that was $3,000, okay? That is a huge money saver. If you're good with a saw, if you know how to, you know, cut and glue stuff together and use a nail gun and a screwdriver and a drill. Okay. It's not that difficult to do. I understand not everybody has the ability to do that or the tools available to do that, but, um, you know, if you can do it, okay, it saves a ton of money for not that much work. I think me and me and my friend Jordan made this in like an afternoon. I think, I mean, my desk took a little longer, but I think we made this rack in like one day and then I stained it and finished it and all that. And it looks great and it works perfectly fine. Um, and if I was doing a straight rack, this is angled. If I was doing straight, it would have been even faster, uh, because the angled is a little bit trickier to get right. But if it was just straight, it's even faster. So anyway, just keep your stuff organized, you know, just don't, don't delay that. Don't be like, oh, I'll get organized late. Like it looks nice. It makes things efficient. There's not really an excuse to not keep your stuff organized and to store your microphone safely. You know, it's simple. It's like when you get a microphone, just keep, you know, you don't have to keep the cardboard box or anything, but like keep the case or the bag for it. Uh, you know, if it's got a flight case, like a nicer condenser microphone will have, keep that. If you don't have a case for a microphone, go get a Pelican case on eBay and, you know, and fit it in there. Okay. Pelican cases are awesome. And if you're not familiar with, I'm sure you are, but, um, you know, they have the break apart foam where you can, you know, pick it out and, and mold it to whatever you're putting in there. A lot of people use them for guns or for other things that need to be, you know, kept locked and airtight. And they're great for microphones. Um, I have a ton of those things for microphones that didn't come with cases or microphones that I bought on eBay or reverb that didn't come with the original cases. Um, so you buy a Pelican case and you keep that stuff safe your microphones will last you a long time and they'll be much safer um, just in terms of exposure to moisture and dust and all that stuff. All right. Next topic. We're going to talk about running guitar signals and how you might have to um, run guitar signals to various rooms. Um, this is a question I get a lot. And so I'll give you a basic rundown of how my signal goes. I run my guitar with a 10-foot cable directly into a uh, Creation Audio Labs MW1 uh, studio tool, which is a really cool piece of gear that does a ton of things. I won't even have time to talk about it, so just go look it up. It's called the MW1 studio tool, and I run directly into that. From there, it goes to two radial SGIs. 
One is coming from the boost output of the MW1, and one is coming from the buffered output of the MW1. Um, that allows me to split my signal into two outputs if I need to, or just use one or the other. Now, I run out of those into the SGIs, which if you're not familiar with the SGI, you should be. It's a very good piece of gear. And essentially what it is, is a line driver. We talked about earlier that guitar cables and instrument cables are very prone to noise. So essentially what the SGI does is uh, amp up your signal level and run it through a balanced line. Now, this isn't something you have to have the two piece, uh, you know, two pieces of the puzzle with the SGI because there's a second box. There's a transmit box on this side of the glass. And then in the live room, there's a, essentially a receive box and it's another little yellow box. And that takes an XLR line uh, and then converts it back down to instrument level. So it's a two part system. I'm just going to review that one more time. So you go into the SGI, it goes through a mic cable uh, that is much less prone to noise, and it's a high it's a high strength signal, um, so very 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 low noise, and uh, that then goes into the other room and out to the uh, receive box, which then goes back to quarter inch for uh, to run into guitar amps. That is how I run my guitar signal into the other room. And um, it works really well for me. The MW1 and the Radial SGI both have ground lifts, which like I talked about earlier, sometimes you have some noise issues running between rooms and grounding issues with that. So having all those ground lifts on the back of the MW1 and having the ground lifts on the Radial SGI is super, super useful. I have extremely low noise transfer of guitar signal because of all those options that I can tweak. And, you know, essentially what I do is I lift the ground in this room and ground from the amp in there, uh, if that makes sense to any of you. But if you have one in, the, in, in real time, you'll, you'll see what I mean. I don't recommend using... Um, there are these little devices called Humex devices, and I love those devices, but I don't recommend using them on guitar amps, okay? That's not necessarily a safe way to go. One place that I do use those Humex devices is on tube microphones, okay? Tube microphones, like, okay, so if I'm running a condenser mic into the snake, right, and then that snake comes into the control room, it's being grounded in here because the gear is grounded here. Uh, whereas if I'm running a tube microphone that needs a power supply, it is being plugged in in the live room, which is a different outlet than is in here. And then it comes into the control room and is grounded again here. So what I do is I run a Humex on my tube mic power supplies. I have a power strip that has a Humex on it that is specifically for tube mics. And sometimes those Humexes can come in handy a whole lot when we're dealing with like pedal boards and stuff like that, but I don't recommend using them on guitar amps. And those little plugs that have, you know, they're like a three-prong plug, and then it has an adapter that goes down to two prongs, you should never use those, okay? Don't use those things. They are unsafe. Anyway, so uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, running isolation cabinets. Now, you don't have to run your guitar signal into another room. 
what you can do and what a lot of people choose to do is run a short line directly into a guitar head that's in the control room and then use a cabinet push, you know, put either in the live room or an isolation room or something in a booth. And because speaker signals are, are very, they have a ton of power and they're very, they're much less prone to noise than guitar level signals. Um, especially when it comes to like hundred watt guitar amps, like you can run a hundred foot cable and not really experience a ton of loss from a speaker cable. Okay. But a hundred foot guitar cable would experience a lot of loss. Okay. So as a backup, I have a 50 foot heavy gauge speaker cable, um, that I can use if I need to put a head in here with me and then run a, just a guitar cabinet by itself in the other room. Okay. So that is a nice feature to have as a backup. Another thing that I have is an isolation cabinet up in my attic. So essentially what I do is I run from my live room up into the attic and I have an isolation cabinet that's surrounded by, you know, uh, some, some essentially like a little room, uh, for that cabinet with, uh, Owens Corning 703 and some drywall and some wood and stuff like that for some density and to isolate that cabinet a little bit. And it's got an SM57 on it, um, just slightly off center, you know, nothing fancy and it works great. The SM57 is hardwired into a preamp that comes down through the wall into my patch bay. So I have it directly on the patch bay as just output. Okay. It's just line level output. Um, and it works great. Okay. That's great in certain situations where you need an isolation cabinet. If you need to record, you know, a, a, a guitar player and a drummer at the same time, but you don't want the guitar amp in the room with the drums. I mean, super, super useful. Okay. Um, so just a quick overview of running guitar signals. You have essentially two ways you can go. You can use something like a radial SGI or something like that or something buffered, okay, to run into another room over an XLR line. That's what I highly recommend. Don't run into the other room on a, on a, on an instrument line, run over an XLR line, um, and go into the other room and then use like the, the other side of the radio box to go back to guitar level. All right. Um, or you can run speaker lines. Now, one reason I don't like to do the speaker line by default is because, um, I would be running like a really high voltage speaker line, uh, high wattage or voltage, um, through my little tiny, uh, my, my PVC pipe right along next to my mic lines. And I don't want to do that. It didn't seem like, uh, I don't really want to do that. Uh, whereas the signal that I'm running from my radial SGI is essentially my guitar DI, um, through the SGI, you know, through the mic lines. So I felt less bad about that. I can't say whether it's better or worse, but like I said, I do have a 50 foot speaker cable, heavy gauge speaker cable available for use to me in those situations where I need that. Um, and from there they go to my, uh, cabinet patch bay. Oh, my cabinet patch bay. This is something that, um, I talked a little bit about on my blog. If you go to the recording lounge website and you go over to my blog, um, I have a blog post called electric guitar recording essentials. It was published back on nine sixteen sixteen. 16. Um, and I talk about the SGI, I talk about the MW1, and I talk about my guitar cab patch bay, which essentially is a uh, box that allows me to patch guitar heads into guitar cabs. So all of my heads plug into it and all of my cabinets plug into it. 
and it allows me to run speaker cable, essentially patch cables between the two. And it is a huge time saver. And uh, it also allows me to patch into my ISO cab up in the attic. Um, I'm actually about to build a second isolation cabinet for the attic because I use it so often. Um, and it allows me to just quickly audition different cabinets. You know, you turn the amp on standby, you plug into a different cabinet, you turn the amp off standby, there you go. You don't have to go reaching around the back of the amp or finding a speaker cable. It's all there for you. Okay, it's really easy. Go check that out on the blog and it'll make a lot more sense to you. Um, the last thing that I wanted to talk about in, in terms of gear stuff is um, having gear exposed and available for people to use. Now, I'm not really talking about audio gear. I'm talking more like guitars and pedals and guitar amps. Like, don't just put all that stuff in storage or in the case or, you know, like away from everyone. Like, show off that stuff, you know? Like, when guitar players come into my studio, they're immediately like, whoa, you know, because they see I've got a lot of guitars, I've got a lot of pedals, I've got a lot of amps, and, you know, they're immediately like, this is awesome, right? Because they see this wall of guitar amps and this, you know, shelf full of pedals and this rack full of guitars, and it's cool, and they get excited. And the same thing goes for drums. Like, I keep my drums set up. Um, I have a CNC kit that I really love, and I've got some nice minor cymbals that I really love. And I keep it set up. So when drummers walk in, they see it and they're like, oh, wow, that kit's awesome. And, you know, if it's all packed away and stuff, like, it just doesn't seem as cool. And I know that sounds lame, but again, this podcast is all about studio maintenance and it's about, you know, just running a studio. So, you know, you can take these opinions or leave them, um, but I think that's really important to, uh, to have, um, to have that stuff exposed and available where someone can just like grab a guitar pedal that they think is intriguing or cool and, and just be inspired to come up with something cool. Or they see like my mandolin and they're like, man, this is cool. Maybe we could put this in there or my 12 string acoustic. And they're like, man, I never thought about putting a 12 string in the song. Maybe we could try it. Like it's just there. It's available. It gets them their ideas flowing and it gets them thinking they pick up a guitar and they think, man, this guitar feels great. I want to play this on this song. Like that to me is really important. So, okay, that, whew, I gotta take a breath for a second. <laughs> that concludes our gear section of this podcast. And I, we're almost to an hour right now and we've got a lot more to go. Okay. We've got four more sections to cover. Like I said, this, this, these episodes are not joking around. Like I've got a ton of info for you. So stick around and we'll be back here in just a second to uh, talk about section number two. Listening to the sounds of the Young Vines and their song Habits and Heartbreak from their EP with the same title. This was recorded and mixed here at the studio. I love this band, really, really cool indie rock band, kind of band of horses, Kings of Leon inspired. Their record is already out, available now. 
So the next section I wanted to talk about is what I'm calling band perk stuff. Now, what I mean by this is stuff that I keep around the studio specifically for my clients. Um, this is stuff that is really simple. It's not that expensive. And you probably should have around your studio at all times. And I, I think bands really appreciate this stuff when you have it around. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is water, beer, coffee, tea, and whiskey. All right. So basically the five elements of life, right? Um, but I always keep water around the studio. Not only do I keep some in the fridge, but I keep some at room temp. Okay. Room temperature water is better for singers. Okay. It, it, it's not as cold or shocking on their throat and it won't tighten up their throat. So keep around both room temp and cold water, cold water, especially for drummers. Um, drummers get really hot and they need cold water. My water of choice is actually Dasani. I am not endorsed in any way by Dasani, uh, but uh, I, I find that it's my favorite personally and bands tend to like it as well. So uh, there you go for what it's worth. <laughs> Um, I also tend to keep beer around the studio. Now, not a ton of beer and not expensive beer, but I, I ask a handful of my clients like, Hey, if you could pick one beer from this list for me to keep around the studio, what would it be? And I had a list of like, you know, a handful of beers and I essentially just took a vote and the beer that I wound up with was Miller High Life. And you might be cringing like, Oh my God, that's disgusting. But <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, it's not that bad, okay? It's cheap, it's readily available, I can get it basically anywhere, I can get it at a gas station or at a supermarket or whatever, and a liquor store, anywhere, and, you know, it's simple, bands like it, it's cold, it's refreshing, it's light, that's another big thing, I don't want to keep heavy beers here and get bands all like loaded up and like drunk and you know i, I just want to keep something light here and it's a it's a huge perk when bands like walk up to the fridge and they're like whoa can i have a beer i'm like yeah sure now granted a lot of bands like if they want to bring their own beer like they will okay so you don't have to worry about that but i keep some beers around just as like a perk like i said and bands really appreciate it and they think it's super cool that i let them have a beer okay um I also always keep coffee around, okay? That's a huge thing because sometimes sessions, uh, you know, they need a little bit of a caffeine rush. So I always keep coffee around the studio. Um, any kind is fine. It doesn't have to be fancy coffee, but just keep coffee around. I usually have a couple of, I usually have a box full of tea as well. Some singers, uh, it's really helpful to have tea around. You can just make hot water with the coffee maker. Um, and then I use the water bottles from that and make hot water. And then you can put tea in there. Often something green tea or, uh, you know, something with lemon or something with honey. That's also really, uh, you know, preferred to like black teas and things like that. Uh, like chai or, you know, just sort of like these like morning teas, anything like that. It's just... It's it's just much easier on the throat to have something herbal or something with honey or lemon. Um, the other thing that I always keep around the studio is a bottle of whiskey. Now, this isn't so that we can all get hammered. It's specifically for singers. Okay, whiskey is a great way to sort of clear out the throat and the nasal passages of a singer if they're sounding just a little bit clogged up or if they're a little bit nervous and need to relax just a little bit. So I always keep a bottle of Crown around. Now, again, Crown is not super expensive. I'm not going out and buying like a 30-year, you know what I mean? Like I, you just, just something that is generally liked by people. It's not a, you know, super cheap one, but it's also not a super expensive one. I just keep a bottle of Crown and, you know, you put a little bit in a cup and it'll clear up their passages in their throat 
and get get rid of some of that like phlegm and build up and stuff like that. It's just really useful to have around. And again, they appreciate it. And you look really cool if you're like, hey, you want some whiskey? So <laughs> there's also that. I mean, sure, if I had my preference, I would have a lot nicer whiskey around here. But again, this isn't about like impressing people with your fancy like 30 year oak aged, you know, uh, bourbon or anything like this is just, it's more about function. All right. Um, okay. So some other things I like to keep around the studio, I always like to keep granola bars around. Okay. It's simple. It's, you know, not like a fatty food. It's just something simple that some, if someone's hungry or feeling a little bit drained and grab a granola bar and they're good to go. Again, the brand doesn't matter. The type doesn't matter. Just something simple. All right. Uh, I usually try to keep an apple or two in the fridge if I can. Um, some people say that green apples can actually help sort of like dry out the mouth a little bit in a good way to prevent lip smacking. Um, I haven't really experienced that like firsthand and been like, oh my gosh, it's night and day. But, you know, it's nice to have an apple or two around if someone doesn't want a granola bar or if someone has like a nut allergy or something, um, you know, to have some sort of snack around. But usually just granola bars and some apples um, or bananas or something like that. You don't have to go all out. Just cheap stuff, right? Like apples are super cheap. Um, I also always keep around paper towels, trash bags, cups, um, and band-aids. Those are things that you know, you don't think about much, but it's super important to have that around paper towels because, you know, if a band's in here and they're eating or drinking or whatever, like that trash can is going to fill up and, you know, you're going to have paper towels and stuff. So you need paper towels. People are bound to spill stuff. Um, you know, you got to be careful with that, but, um, you always got to keep cups around for the coffee, for the water, for the tea, for the beer, for the, you know, anything like that. Uh, and you also need to keep some band-aids around because, you know, stuff happens and you don't want people like bleeding on your stuff. That's disgusting. So, you know, it's simple, right? I'm just sort of presenting these things to you like, hey, did you think of this? Did you think of this? Another thing that I always keep around is a rain towel is what I'm going to call it. And essentially, it's just like a shop towel. Like it's a big, large towel that I can put by the door if it's raining outside or if it's been snowing. And, you know, I don't want people to track in a bunch of crap. So I put it by the door anytime there's weather and people can wipe their feet on it. Uh, you know, again, that's one of those things that you don't really think about. But, you know, all of a sudden you look back and you realize that your control room has like muddy footprints or like whatever. And you're like, dang it. Now you have to go clean it. So I always keep a shop towel around for stuff like that. Um, another thing that I like to keep around for clients is always having pens, papers, and sticky notes around for bands to use. Um, invariably people are going to ask, Hey, can I have some paper? Can I have a pen? And always make sure you've got that stuff around and readily available where they can just grab it and make some notes or, um, you know, some people will take notes on their phone or, or their iPad or whatever, but, um, I like to take notes often on uh, with paper, um, especially for listening, you know, while I'm listening to music, but, uh, yeah, keep that stuff around. It's really important. I have a little box that has some pads and pens and stuff in there that people can just grab and go. Um, another thing, another band perk that I like to have for bands is I like to keep a camera around in the studio and, uh, I'm definitely like an amateur photographer. Like, you know, I'm no fancy photographer. The pictures on my website, I, I took myself. So I, I don't know if that says anything. I mean, they're fine. I think they look okay, but you know, I'm no professional photographer, but I have a decent camera 
And um, I keep a camera around and try to take pictures when I can. Because, you know, you can get caught up in the moment and, you know, and sometimes it's really nice to have those pictures and then you can send them to the band and, you know, or take some video or something and the bands really appreciate it. They really think it's super cool to have these cool shots uh, of them. And uh, an example of this is if you go to my studio website, which is theclosetstudios.com and you go to photos. Um, you know, you can see some pictures that I've taken, uh, with bands there. And, you know, those bands later tell me like, um, man, that's a super great picture or whatever. And I'm like, it's, you know, it's, it's okay. Um, and, but they really appreciate it because they look cool and they can see themselves in action and they don't have to hire a photographer, uh, to come to their session. And that's the other thing is having photographers in the room can be kind of annoying. So just to have me do it, just to have it available for me to snap a couple of pictures here and there is really simple. It's out of the way. Uh, and you know, it's a nice perk. Another thing I would like to talk about in regard to band perks is bands need internet, okay? Uh, people need internet, but a lot of times you need the internet to download files, to transfer to, you know, the studio or whatever, or to send emails, or when somebody is recording, somebody else needs to go work, do some work, or, uh, you know, send out some emails or whatever, or post on social media. So it is highly recommended that you've got internet. Now you don't have to have like the best, fastest internet available, but it is recommended that you have some internet available for people. Um, I do recommend having a Wi-Fi password just as matter of course, but make it something simple that you can tell bands without having to like write it down and like explain it to them. Just keep it simple. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is sort of studio policy when it comes to smoking and drinking and substances. Now, we've talked about this, I think, a little bit in the past here and there. Um, I try to keep my studio as substance-free as possible, aside from beer and cigarettes, uh, just because, you know, I, I've had bands come in and, you know, they smoke and, and that's fine. I have no personal problem with it, but it never results in the like super creative mindset that they think it does in the studio. I mean, if they're writing songs and they want to smoke some weed, like that's not my, that's not my business. But, you know, in the studio, I've never really found it to be like, oh my gosh, that was the one. Um, you know, I just, I just haven't, at least me personally, I'm, I'm sure other people have had different experiences with that and that's fine. But me personally, anytime a band comes in and, you know, they've been smoking some weed or something, they just perform worse and they miss stuff and their timing is kind of sloppy. I've just never really felt that it was better. Um, and that, again, that's just my personal experience. I, I could be proven wrong someday, but um, I do always try to keep an ashtray outside of the studio because otherwise bands will be flicking cigarettes on your, you know, on your uh, walkway and that's no fun. Uh, so you try to keep a nice ashtray or something out there so people can uh, dispose of their cigarette butts. And also obviously make sure to have a trash can, uh, you know, where people can put beer bottles or water bottles or paper or whatever they need to throw away. Okay, all that stuff needs to be uh, clearly available to them because, you know, your, your studio can become... A, a like a trash world very quickly when you've got a bunch of people here in the studio all with you know drinks and coffees and stuff like that. Now, one other sort of interesting band perk I'd like to talk about is setup. Now, bands, if you have the time, I would recommend trying to set some stuff up before the band gets there. Now, I get it. Like part of, a, I mean, if we charge by the hour, you know, you make more money if you include the setup. However. 
Um, it depends on the session, but sometimes, you know, bands are kind of in a hurry and they're trying to pack stuff in. And so if you've got the extra time, try to set up some stuff before the band gets there, you know, set up the sessions, set up some mics, set up some mic stands at least, uh, to save some time. Like the bands really appreciate that. It shows a little bit of extra effort on your part that you cared enough to set up some stuff. Um, for example, I had a, a folk trio coming in one time and I knew that they were going to have fiddle, mandolin and acoustic guitar and sometimes banjo. So I went ahead and set up, you know, four or five microphones that I thought would probably work pretty well on those sources. I think I set up, um, a mic for each of those instruments, like one for fiddle, one for acoustic, one for banjo, one for mandolin, which were actually two very similar mics. Um, but then I also set up a room mic. And uh, so whether we were going to record all at once or not, I wasn't really sure yet. I kind of assumed we might. Uh, but when they came in, you know, they could pretty much just sit down and start tuning up and we recorded all live. And it was like, wow, that was super quick. <laughs> um, I also had headphones set up for them, uh, three headphones set up for them all back behind their chairs. Um, so, you know, it just shows a little bit extra effort on your part and, and makes you look really good to a client that like you just saved them, you know, a one hour of work and one hour of money for them uh, by spending a little extra time and just setting up in advance and top that all off with the fact that, you know, we want to keep the energy up in the studio and setup and changeovers kind of kill the mood for a little bit while you're changing stuff over. I mean, sure, you can talk and, you know, uh, just chill out for a little bit while you're setting stuff up. But sometimes it's just kind of a, a buzzkill. So having that stuff set up or at least having the first thing set up, which in a lot of cases is going to be like um, something for a scratch track, like an acoustic guitar DI or something or an electric guitar amp. And, uh, you know, the drums, that'll probably be like the first thing you record uh, in like a full band session. Having that stuff set up ahead of time is like, it, it just shows a nice, like you care sort of initiative from the engineer. So I highly recommend doing that whenever possible. But another thing I'd like to talk about is interns. Now, uh, I've got an intern and he's great. And I've had him as an intern for a while. And um, I would like to hire him sooner than later to work for me, um, part-time at least, and then hopefully one day full-time. But, um, you know, having an intern available on sessions can also be a really big time saver to have somebody else there, at least someone that you trust, and I do trust my intern, uh, to have somebody there that can help with changeovers and help with setups and help that stuff while you're sort of talking to the band or doing other things. They can be tearing down mics or setting up mics or whatever, wrapping cables, cleaning up. Uh, they can go get food or, or water or beer for the band if they need it. They can go get stuff, run quick errands. I mean, that shows that you care and you want to keep your studio running efficiently. And that's a huge perk for the band, like to save time for them and save money for them and also just make your studio look great by being a well-oiled machine. I mean, that's definitely a perk and something that they will remember later and come back to you and be like, yeah, man, his studio is super efficient and we got our stuff done and it was fun and it was relaxed and, you know, he really knows his stuff. That shows a lot about your character and about how you run your business. Uh, another couple of perks that I would say are useful to keep around for bands is to keep a cell phone charger. I know that sounds like kind of simple and stupid, but again, 
It's those little things that add up and bands are like, hey, do you have a cell phone charger? And then you've got one and you look like a superhero because we all know how it sucks to be somewhere and that you're going to be for a while and your phone's dead. Um, so the cell phone charger is great. Uh, it's really important to also keep like adapters for uh, headphones, adapters for or, or even AC adapters for guitar pedals, nine volt batteries. I mean, just like all the basic stuff that you keep around. Um, I always have guitar tools around like string winders and screwdrivers and, uh, you know, wire cutters and things like that. So obviously make those available to those people if they're changing their strings or something, you know, just look at them and be like, hey, do you, do you need a wire cutter? Do you need any stuff like that for changing your strings? Um, because again, it's all those little things that add up to overall a, a better experience. And, you know, a lot of this show, Studio Maintenance, is about just having a well-oiled, well-maintained studio uh, in, in all facets and just running your business smoothly and efficiently and essentially just, you know, being professional and having stuff available for people. Another thing that I always keep around the studio are guitar stands and guitar straps. Um, you know, and again, it's all just like those little things that you never know when you're going to need. I always have a guitar stand that uh, can hold like five guitars um, for bands to just bring in. So essentially, I'm trying to create the ideal scenario where they bring in their guitar in a case and or their drums or their, you know, snare cymbals or whatever. And they just don't have to worry about anything else. Like I'm trying to create as few worries for them as possible. They don't have to worry about, do we have water? Do we have snacks? Do we have beer? Do we have, you know, uh, can I smoke out here? Can I, you know, do you have somewhere I can put my guitar? Do you have stuff for me to change strings? Like you're just trying to remove as many worries from the band as possible and just make the experience as smooth as possible. Okay, so that's the end of part one of our part two series on studio maintenance and running a studio. So uh, make sure you stick around for part two. We're talking about a lot more stuff. We're talking about aesthetics and building stuff, and we're going to talk about tax stuff and money, uh, all kinds of other good stuff. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to check out the website, recordingloungepodcast.com, and the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash recordinglounge. You can find everything Recording Lounge related at the website, including signing up for our mailing list or filling out the contact form to send me an email. Uh, have our, you have our resource hub, which has links to all kinds of cool websites and blogs and podcasts and books and articles and all kinds of stuff there for you. Um, you know, so keep in touch and we'll talk to you guys very soon on episode 101.